Uh, Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, he is a regular guest on this show. We love having him here. Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. So a couple things I want to get to today. We're going to w- go through two different topics here. Uh, first of all, the other day we heard about leaked documents from the provincial liberal government that it outlines uh, at least the dream for what the green future is going to be in Ontario. Now, we can talk about the value of going green, and I think there are uh, different people who have different opinions, but we can see that it's you know it's a nice idea that we want to have a clean economy and we want to be uh, being nice to the planet and all the rest. However, we could also argue, by the way, whether or not the Liberals will be in power long enough to implement this policy that exists. But I wanted to go through some of these things because it seems to me that a number of these things have a, could have a significant impact on our economy if they were to come in. Because they are talking about electric cars, getting rid of fossil fuels to heat homes, solar power, electrical heating, all these kind of things. So, Marvin, let's break this down, if we can, sure. bit by bit, and start with the idea of one of their big first new ideas, which is electric cars, which is something that they exist, but not really. What what impact would requiring people to start buying electric cars have on our economy? Well, Scott, first, if I can say, when, when this document was leaked, I was a little confused whether it was a green energy plan or the assisted suicide document. <laughs> it seemed like it could be assisted suicide for the Liberal government if they were to pass it as it was. And we do want to be clear that Kathleen Wynne and both Glenn Murray, who's in charge of this area, have backed away and said, no, no, this was a draft document. Some of the things talked about in there, they were to challenge us, get us thinking outside the box, but we're not necessarily going there, or we're not necessarily going there that quickly. But let's talk about electric cars. In this plan that was put forward, and it's already there today, if you buy an electric car, there's a subsidy from the government. It can vary from a couple of thousand dollars up to as much, I think, as $14,000, depending upon the kind of vehicle that you buy. Even with subsidies today, the number of electronic cars or electric cars in Ontario is around 25,000, compared to the total number of cars on the road, which is something on the order of 20 million. So we're talking about less than 1%, and yet, in their vision, they'd like to see that number grow to 25% of the cars. So today, less than 1%, 25%, 5 million cars on the road that are powered with electricity. So first thing, of course, would be going to spend a lot of money on subsidies. It would also require you and I to buy these cars. And there are two problems with these cars. One is the distance to travel on a charge. If all I'm doing is commuting from Dundas to Hamilton, no big deal. But if I wanted to go from uh, uh, Hamilton to, say, Windsor, Ontario, I could get there in one charge, but then I'd need to charge in Windsor before I came home. And here's the problem. <clears throat> to get a full tank, quote-unquote, of electricity to charge it right to capacity, today takes about, you know, eight hours. So our vision today is you come home, you plug it in, you go to bed. In the morning you get up, the car is perfectly charged. But if I'm going down to Windsor to visit relatives for a 50th wedding anniversary or something like that, I'm not going to be there long enough to get a full charge. Also, where am I going to do that charging? We have a wonderful infrastructure of privately owned gas stations that would have to be replaced with charging stations. Now, they're out there. Some retailers and even the government at Go Station have some charging stations, which I think actually allow you to recharge for free as a little bonus. But because it's a novelty, it's not costing anybody money. If we had 5 million cars on the road, those chargers wouldn't be free anymore. Where are we going to get those, those infrastructures? So 
I can't put a dollar value on it for you, Scott, but you know, clearly we're talking billions of dollars, probably even on the order of tens of billions of dollars, to make that dream a reality quickly. And then when it hits closer to home, because presumably, and I'm not the economist here, but if we now say to car makers, hey, listen, everyone's going to have to be buying electric cars, supply and demand would suggest to me anyway that the cost of the electric cars continues to go up if they know that everyone's going to have to buy one. Well, that, you know, or, or the other way around, if there's a lot more of them on the market, it could drive the price down. But right at the moment for the major car makers, and I'm not talking just North American car makers, but also the, the Japanese, the, the German, the Korean, uh, these electric vehicles are, again, a novelty. What they're moving towards instead seems to be hybrid vehicles that let you run on electricity when it's practical, but let you run on gas, gives you much bigger gas mileage and much lower emissions, but not zero. Also, another key thing that this is all predicated on is that however we're generating electricity is carbon neutral. So in the past, remember, we had coal-fired plants. We, had, uh, we have natural gas-fired plants. We even had oil-fired plants. If we're burning that oil to generate the electricity, that isn't necessarily any cleaner. So the hope is in this plan that by the time these cars are out there, we've got clean things like uh, wind power, solar power, and big batteries to store that so when the sun isn't shining or the wind is down, we can still supply you with that energy. It's a, it's a lovely vision of the future. I just don't know if it's going to happen that quickly. I like the idea, though, of the windmill on the roof of the car to power it. That, that's, that's kind of one we hadn't even considered, and you just I thought of it as you were discussing it. Or the windmill at home. You know, uh, if you can remember the Zeller's stores, a few years ago they put rather small windmills on the tops of their stores to try to generate electricity. Those are much smaller than the ones we see commercially. Those could be installed in your home, and you could be generating some of that as well. But, you know, we're not there yet. And so that's why I think it's nice to have a vision and work towards that vision. But how soon, I'm not sure. Well, you have been on this show several times as we've talked over the years about the rise and fall and demand and everything else with gas prices and how that affects our, our economy the biggest probably part of this is the idea that we are going to get rid of fossil fuels to heat our home and go to electricity. There's two issues with this. One, what does this do for the broader Canadian economy if suddenly Ontario isn't buying Canadian oil? And secondly, we already have seen how much electricity has gone up in price. What happens if now, again, same thing, we have to buy this. What does that do to our bottom line? So you're right again that this isn't just about the government subsidies. It's what you and I are going to pay as we go forward. I had a home built for me in Dundas roughly 20 years ago, and I, I could choose any source of energy at the time to heat the house, and I chose natural gas because I figured that I was saving something on the order of 500 to to $1,000 a year not using electricity. If I was forced to change, I have a couple of problems. Problem number one is my home is designed for forced hot air heating. In other words, today I, I burn natural gas someplace that generates a lot of heat, and then the, the ventilation system, the fans, what have you, move that hot air throughout the house to heat the house. <clears throat> Electricity doesn't work like that, so I'd actually need to rip out one infrastructure and put in a new infrastructure. The cost of a single-home conversion to go from natural gas to electricity today is estimated. Not This isn't the operating cost. This is just the infrastructure as somewhere between five dollars and $10,000 per house. Then there comes the heating costs. It is going to cost me more. There's no doubt about it. And that's with today's electricity. Will future electricity be cheaper? No one thinks that's going to be the case. Everyone thinks that we're going to have to pay more for electricity. So your extra home heating cost could be a personal cost of three or $4,000. 
And then you ask what this means for, for Canada. Again, a, a real danger here is if Ontario does something and the other jurisdictions doesn't follow, then you create some differences. And if I'm a, a corporation who could still you know, heat with natural gas in Quebec or in British Columbia, I might be tempted to move. But just to give you a sense of it, Ontario consumes roughly 10% of the natural gas that Alberta produces. And if we were to suddenly go uh, natural gas-free, where are they going to replace that demand? And that's going to have an impact on that province. It does seem, as you say, said off the top, Marvin, I mean, obviously this is a trial balloon that was floated out there, to, I, I think, to get a sense of um, what people were thinking. And it, it, but, boy, it just sounds expensive. I mean, it re- as you say it, it, off the top, it just sounds really, really expensive. Well, well, it does, but now let me give you a contrary argument here for a second. So if you look at the uh, uh, wildfire in Fort McMurray, to what extent do you feel that's caused by uh, climate change? If you feel the climate change is at the root of this, the, the cleanup and the recovery from the Fort McMurray fire alone is probably going to be around 5 to $6 billion just on there. Do you remember the Calgary flood of a few years ago? The Red River has flooded. Um, we've got other heavy hurricanes, strong tornadoes that do damage more in the United States than in Canada. Those cost as well. And the argument here is, yes, there's a cost to move, but if we can reduce the carbon in the environment and cool the environment, we save as a society from not having those natural disasters. Now, does the government pay? No, it's the insurance companies, but the insurance companies get their money from the same place that the governments do. That's you and I. In fact, I'm expecting to see housing insurance rates go up next year because of the Fort McMurray incident. So we pay one way or we pay the other. You just can't ignore climate change. And I think the trick for a government is to find some sort of middle ground path. Let's move in the right direction. Let's not move at a snail's pace, but also let's not try to fly at the rate of a condor. Let's try to find some middle ground in there that we can wean ourselves off and also allow technology to catch up. It wasn't that many years ago, Scott, that if I wanted a car that ran on electricity, I would be the only thing in the car. The rest of it would be a battery. Well, batteries have improved, so now I can at least put some passengers in the car. But we need batteries to improve even farther to hold more energy and keep that charge for a longer period of time. That's what's going to make the electric car uh, reasonable. Let's switch to the other topic quickly. We only have a few minutes, but I wanted to get to this because I thought it was really interesting. I'm watching a commercial the other day, and, and it was a McDonald's commercial, and they are showing the, the new version yes. of McDonald's where you will build your hamburger and then on a nice wooden platter or plank uh, with the gourmet-looking fries, they will deliver it to your table. It is all a very new, very chic, very uh, upscale version of McDonald's. And as I'm watching this, I realize, okay, you know what? Tim Hortons over the years has tried to broaden its base and hit on some other areas that it didn't normally do. And we've seen this with Budweiser recently. They're trying a few new things with de-alcoholized beer and other things. Marvin, if you have an established, well a well-established uh, spot in the market where you have done very nicely, are you better off to stay with your strength or are you better off to venture into all these things even though, you know, there's a risk someone goes to your place and now doesn't like what you've done to it even though that's what got you there? Mm-hmm. So I have a tough answer for you here and that's that uh, as good as it sounds to stay where you are, the problem is that consumers keep changing. We keep evolving. The consumers of 2016 aren't the same consumers of 1995. The filet fish sandwich or the 
Big Mac and fries or the Quarter Pounder. You remember the Quarter Pounder? That used to do really well. It's gone. But, uh, you know, that used to sell a lot. And then we consumers change. And sometimes we change because we want vegan options or vegetarian options. Or we bring a cultural influence. Uh, McDonald's now has McWraps. Wrap sandwiches aren't part of a, a North American cultural tradition, but if you come from Asia, wrap sandwiches make a lot of sense. So my advice to companies, even successful companies, has always been to constantly experiment, try things. And to their credit, McDonald's has been one of the biggest test marketers or triers of ideas over time. They would do limited edition things, say a limited edition sundae or a shake, measure how many they sell. If they sell enough, that flavor might get added to the menu. If it doesn't, it gets deleted. You can remember the McRib sandwich. How many times have they tried to bring that in? The pork producers of Ontario have been begging, try it one more time. <laughs> Maybe right. you'll make it work this time because they saw what happened with McNuggets and what it did for the chicken farmers. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is an idea that you've seen in McDonald's. is actually not a new idea globally. I, I'm not trying to brag when I say this to you, but typically I try to visit Europe once a year in the spring at this time of the year. And I have seen this concept already in play in Europe, that no longer do you go to a counter, you go to a touch screen, you order whatever it is you want to eat. Um, they take it, you pay with a credit card, you sit at a table with a number and somebody brings it out to you. And that seemed to work very well. Now, it's a very urban idea in bigger cities where you don't drive up through a drive through and you have your car you know, running, ready to run. Uh, it has done very well for them over there, along with the McCafe concepts, which don't look anything like a McDonald's. You know, I have gone into them and had some fancy hot chocolate and an eclair that seems like it's come right out of a European bakery, and it seems to work there. So now they're trying it in Canada. And I think, again, in fairness to them, much like Starbucks introduced wine in a limited number of their stores, mostly, in, again, in urban centers, McDonald's is trying this out in some of the urban centers as a way to regain those hipsters, you know, those, those highly trendy people who go, oh, McDonald's, I, oh, I wouldn't be caught dead there. Families and that's, with kids and are fine, but the hipsters, they want to win them back, so they're giving it a try. I, I give them credit for that. And Marvin, that's exactly the point that you just touched on, is that you're trying to win them back, and, and they may have gone there as a kid, but I'm wondering if, if there is a risk that, you know what, I go to McDonald's, uh, using the example, because there's lots of them, that I go there because I know what it is, and that's something I like and I'm familiar with, and now I show up, and it's a completely different thing, and I say, wait a second, this isn't the brand that I liked and this isn't a brand that I wanted to be around. So do you run the risk that you may gain some new customers, but you chase off some as well? Absolutely. And that's why you have to measure. You have to see what you gain and what you lose. If you're a happy family that go in there and you want a happy meal and, uh, I don't know, a Big Mac and a couple of fries and just everything's just fine, then you may actually say, well, this is taking too long. I'm not looking for this kind of service. You might be tempted to try out A&W or Harvey's or some other place like that. Now, I'm, I'm a funny guy when it comes to a burger. I just kind of like a burger, maybe with a little cheese, maybe a little ketchup and, and pepper. But that's it. I don't want the pickles and the lettuce and the tomatoes and the mayonnaise and all the rest of that stuff. If I go into McDonald's now, in fact, I haven't eaten at a McDonald's probably for 20 years because it takes too long for me to get that hamburger. I'd rather go to Harvey's where they make it the way I want right in front of me. I can get in and out much more quickly. So I'm curious about this new system. And that's what you have to innovate. Now, just to go to your Budweiser example, this is called Prohibition Budweiser. Yes. This is a Budweiser product that is de-alcoholized. Now, why? Why have they introduced this? De-alcoholized products have been growing at the, a double-digit rates, like 10% a year. 
Having said that to you, though, they account for less than one-half of 1% 1 of all beer consumed in Canada. It, it's not a trivial volume, and it has grown dramatically, but overall it's still a very, very small part of this. So they're saying, well, look, you know, if it's going to keep growing at this rate, it's going to get bigger over time. Um, Labatt's already has some de-alcoholized products in the marketplace, but they're, you know, pretty generic. Let's try positioning again, a sort of an upscale, they call it Prohibition era Budweiser, and see what it does. My guess, it's not going to work. My guess, six months from now, they'll take it off the market very quietly. But, again, full credit for trying because if this trend were to suddenly catch on, they could be caught flat-footed and not have an entrant in the market. And you've seen that before. You know, if you think of um, the battle between Xerox and Dell and IBM over computers, uh, nobody really saw the tablet. So Apple comes out with the iPad, cleans up everyone else running into that marketplace. Well, you're late to the game. You really want to try to get in there on the ground floor as those trends are developing. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time today. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Anytime, Scott.